Hello and welcome to this podcast from the City of London Churches. My name is Laura Jurgensen and I'm the Rector of St Botolph Without Aldgate on the eastern side of the City of London. The theme this month for Our City Together is fashion. Later in this podcast I'll talk about the church equivalent to fashion I suppose, uh, which is our glorious church vestments. But first, fashion is not something that Christians are always known for. But you'd be surprised because we're going to hear from Catherine Rumans about her background in the fashion world and also as one of the first women ordained priests in 1994, about the fascination about what women vicars would wear and about how both of those worlds came together when she moved to St Giles Cripplegate in the Barbican. My name is Catherine Rumans. I'm rector of St Giles Cripplegate. I sort of got into fashion by accident. I was looking to retrain and the calligraphy course was two years and I could only have funding for one year and the interior design course was full and I was too impatient to wait. So I did a course in fashion production which was technically very good. It means that I could count stitches per inch and had some awareness of fabrics and machining and pattern cutting. It did mean then that I was equipped to set up by myself. And because I'd come in this rather sort of sideways way, I didn't really know the rules and I didn't know that you weren't necessarily supposed to turn up to Vogue with a suitcase of your clothes and say, these are samples of the ranges who should I be selling to? And therefore, in the early days, Vogue were very helpful in terms of my identifying outlets and selling through designer shops in and around London. And I learned about a lot about fashion. I learned about selling fashion. I learned about um, the customer. I learned about coordination, the sort of things that you knew instinctively or you felt that you knew instinctively, how they were managed. Uh, in the retail uh, environment. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a terribly good background or appropriate background to go to theological college. And I remember in that first term, standing outside a designer shop in Cambridge, just the sort of ones that I would have sold to with a friend and identifying the combination of yellow khaki and and navy that was coming through as the colour story, which we knew about. And in the fashion business, you worked so far ahead. And this friend looked completely flummoxed, actually, and not a bit interested in my, in my, in in, in my knowledge of colour stories and things like that disappear over the course of theological education. But they did, of course, reoccur again when I was among one of the first 1,500 women to be ordained to the priesthood in the Church of England in 1994, there was a lot of interest about what on earth we were going to wear as female priests, as if the women who were ordained deacon in 1987 hadn't actually begun to work that out for themselves. And I don't know if it's apocryphal, but it's a jolly good story that there was a committee set up in anticipation of women being ordained deacon in 1987, to to, to recognise that actually these women now needed to present themselves as ordained within the Church of England, but 
how were they going to do this in a feminine and fashionable and different way? And the committee came up with the idea of a lapel badge, which would identify the wearer as ordained in the Church of England. And surprisingly, the women didn't take any notice of this lapel badge and, uh, and adopted the clerical collar. And then at the time, women said, no, and we need to wear a black shirt with our clerical collars. We need to be identifiable. You meet a family for the first time because you're there to talk about the funeral. They can't be confused about your status. Who are you? We need to speak quite clearly about our function in the community and the people we're there to serve. But uh, the church outfitters, of course, thought otherwise and came up with a range of outfits for women, which at the time I think consisted mainly of pink pin-tucked shirts with puffed sleeves, or rather blouses, um, as if really that the, the clerical dress is a uniform, as it were. And I always made the point at the time that you wouldn't expect women doctors to wear a floral print coat, they too could wear a white coat or what their male contemporaries were wearing. So I turned up at St Giles Cripplegate with this background in fashion and delighted to find myself at city dinners because, hey, I could begin to wear those samples that I had been unable to part with when I went to theological college, samples of evening dress samples of occasion wear that I used to model when I was in the rag trade and now I could wear at functions. And although the city is not high fashion in the sense that it is as it would be the, the catwalk or, or you know, the designer shows, it is very good dressing. I dare say dressing up because we know of the pageantry and the drama and the theatre that is in many formal city events. And sitting there at dinner with women um, who also have dressed up for the occasion and of course we are sitting in magnificent settings which of course also enhances the sense of occasion and the sense of dress if you've got the chandeliers and if you've got those portraits and if you've got these wonderful livery halls or for example at a, a livery company service the women will come wonderfully dressed and in their hats I've never seen so many wonderful hats the millinery trade must do very well out of city occasions. The difference between myself and other women dining is probably budget in that clergy live on a stipend and we have to present ourselves as professional. We have to present ourselves as um, competently and confidently. I can do that because I, as I said, I pull out the old samples or uh, I go to a charity shop and I think, well, that's very promising and I'll take, take those sleeves out and I'll move the back belt to this position and I'll do that with a hemline and I've got an outfit at a very little cost. It does feel, um, I'm not quite sure anybody knows that, but certainly uh, we are operating, as I said, from a very different budget to present ourselves in the setting of the city. I can't talk about the boardroom, I can't talk about women in offices, I can't talk about 
um, what matters there in terms of fashion, professional dressing, dressing for success, and all the other uh, ways that we refer to women, professional women, dressing for the occasion and dressing for the uh, for the event. The fit, this, the, I, I would say that the city is not highly fashionable, but it is highly well turned out. I don't think we're interested really in what um, the hemline is doing in Paris or even New York. We have our own confidence. We have our own um, our own way of enjoying clothes and dressing well. The attention to detail is wonderful. The accessories and, as I said before, the hats. But most of all, I think what sets off women's fashion in the city of London is the context we find ourselves in. The magnificent, the magnificent buildings and churches, the occasions and the candlelight. Any woman is going to look good there. Thanks to Catherine for that fascinating insight. Catherine talked about the need for clergy to be recognisable as they go about their daily tasks. The everyday wear of the clergy has changed somewhat over the years. And although it's not quite anything goes yet, there is a right wide range. And you can tell a clergy person's church tradition from what they choose to wear as they go about those daily tasks. The city churches are really a microcosm of the breadth of the Church of England. To generalise, the evangelical clergy are less likely to be in clerical collars or dog collars as they're more widely known, and much more likely to be in a blazer and tie or even a hoodie and jeans. You might say that the clothing becomes more austere as you move through the spectrum from pastel clerical shirts through, and quoting that great Henry Ford, any colour as long as it's black, to the blackest of black shirts with highly starched collars, which are most likely to be worn by those on the Anglo-Catholic wing of the church. At services though, and when I have school groups coming into church to learn about our services, I always tell the children it's a little like dressing up to go to a party to show that it's a special occasion. Clergy and others wear vestments, some sumptuous, some less ornate. Unlike fashion, vestments worn at a service are not for the adornment of the person wearing them, but to point people to God in worship. Vestments developed as the church did from those early years of Christianity. As churches grew in size during the later years of the Roman Empire, so the clothing worn in church was adapted from Roman secular dress. These got adapted and embellished through the years so much so that it was sometimes hard to see their origin. The stole, for example, a long band of silk which is worn draped around the neck with the ends hanging ver vertically, has obscure origins but may have developed from a handkerchief or perhaps from a secular scarf used as a symbol of rank. It may have been used originally for wiping the mouth but has now become far more symbolic. When people are ordained first as a deacon, they wear their stoles over their left shoulder, fastening under their right arm. And then as priests, the stoles are adjusted. They are a symbol of their ordination. And we get a lot of trouble 
if we wipe them on our mouths today, I suspect. The chasuble worn by the person presiding at mass, sometimes called the Eucharist or Holy Communion, the service where Christians remember the Last Supper and Jesus sharing the bread and wine with the disciples, originates from a rose Roman piece of clothing, a little like a cloak, which is pulled over the head and drapes the body. As the service progresses and the priest comes to say really sacred words over the bread and the wine, the priest lifts their hands, which reveals both the colour, and different colours are worn for different seasons of the church's year, and also the embroidery and symbol on the chasuble. For those who are not able to read or write, or for those who are in huge barns of churches where the priest was a long way away, these moments would have told people that something very important and special was going on. That great block of colour created when the priest lifts his or her arms highlights these important moments in the service. Nowadays, vestments are most likely to be made with sewing machines and are rarely embroidered by hand these days. Machines can do that too, of course, with the right programming. But the City of London was the centre for ecclesiastical embroidery in medieval times, producing amazing vestments. The term opus anglicanum, which literally means English work, is used for these glorious and detailed embroidered chasubles, copes, stoles, altar frontals and many other ecclesiastical items. In those days, trades, trades tended to congregate in distinct areas of the city and for the broderers, the name for those who did embroidery, those whose fine work we can still admire in museums, such as the amazing uh, exhibition a few years ago at the Victorian and Albert Museum. These broders were centred in the area around St Paul's Cathedral and St Mary Bellabeau, south of Cheapside. The lively, compelling vestments feature Christ figures, Madonna, saints and angels, the tiny, elegant stitches bringing alive the Christian faith. They were often given as gifts and some came to expect or even perhaps extort people into giving them. Matthew Paris, the monastic chronicler of the 13th century, wrote this of Pope Innocent IV. The Lord Pope, seeing the embroidered vestment of the English prelates, enviable copes, orphreys and other things, inquired where they were made. To which the reply was, in England. He himself answered, truly, England is our garden of delights, an inexhaustible well from whose plenty many things may be extorted. Thus the same Pope, made greedy by this sight, sent sealed letters to all the Cistercian abbots in England, that they should send him those gold embroideries, which he most preferred to decorate his chasubles and copes as if they were obtainable for nothing. The London merchants who dealt in these things were not displeased and sold them at whatever price they chose. Given the current Pope's preference for simple dress and his old comfortable shoes, this is not a scenario that is likely to be repeated today. There are still ecclesiastical embroiderers working today, 
like the Broderers Guild at St Paul's Cathedral, and people around the country who are working with modern techniques and fabrics to produce stoles to match the hopes and dreams of any church. Vestments play an important part in many churches in the city. They are there not to elevate the person wearing them. Indeed, they can be less of a distraction if people are prone without them to wander about a priest's fashion choice. But they give uniformity, these vestments, and elevate why we are in church, which is to worship God. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast. Most of the city churches are now open for worship or just for visiting, and you will be most welcome to join us.